Hi, good morning. My name is Rachel Taylor, and I'm on staff here at the church. I'm the director for our small group program, as well as our Leadership Institute program. And if you're unfamiliar with the Leadership Institute, it's basically an in-depth discipleship program for adults. So if you have questions at any point about small groups or our Leadership Institute, feel free to shoot me an email. We can even hop on a quick Zoom call if you'd like. I'd love to answer any questions you have about either of those. Well, when I first heard about the Explore God series and saw the list of questions it would be addressing, I saw this question on why does God allow pain and suffering? And the first thing I thought was, I wanna preach that sermon. Now, I didn't wanna preach this sermon because I have all of the answers to pain and suffering, but I wanted to preach this sermon because I've been struggling with chronic pain for the last 20 years. So what that means is I've been wrestling with this question of why does God allow pain and suffering for 20 years? And it's actually the question behind the question that I've been wrestling with the most, which is, is God really a good God? If God's a good God, why does he allow all the pain and suffering that's in the world? If he's in control, why doesn't he stop it? And I'm not just asking these questions for my own pain and suffering or the pain and suffering of my loved ones. I'm asking this question for all the pain and suffering I see all around the world, including what's going on with the current war in Israel. And I'm not just asking these questions for this time. I'm asking these questions for all of the human suffering that has gone throughout the history of the world. There's a lot of pain and suffering to try and make sense of. Shortly after I heard about Explore God and the Sermon on Pain, I was down in LA visiting a friend of mine who's a professor at Fuller Theological Seminary. And one night over dinner, she asked me what my theology of pain was. Now, a theology of something is just a set of thoughts and beliefs about a particular topic and how those thoughts and beliefs relate to God. And so what my friend was asking me was, how did I make sense of both the existence of pain in the world and the existence of a God who I believed to be good? Now, I hadn't really thought of it in those terms before as a theology of pain, but as we were talking, I realized that I did have a theology of pain. In fact, I realized that we all have a theology of pain. You have a theology of pain. We've all encountered pain in the world and had to figure out how to make sense of it for ourselves. If you believe in the existence of God, then you've had to reconcile your experiences of pain with the existence of a good God. And if you don't believe in the existence of God, chances are that the reason you came to that conclusion has at least something to do with how you are processing the presence of pain in the world. Uh, It's important to point out that whether to believe in the existence of God or to not believe in the existence of God, both require a degree of faith. As humans, we can't know everything. We want to know everything. We desperately try to know everything, especially here in the Silicon Valley where we prize education above almost anything else. But our human limitation remains. We can't know everything. And so we must decide what we think about the existence of God based on the limited information we have. To believe in the existence of God or to believe 
that God doesn't exist both require a degree of faith. But regardless of whether you believe in the existence of God or not, we have all encountered pain and had to figure out what to do with it. From the moment we are born, we are faced with this. Apparently, the process of being born isn't a pleasant one. We know this because every single time a baby is born, the first thing they do is cry. Now, I don't know that it physically hurts, but it's definitely emotionally disturbing and jarring. And all of us have had an adult in that moment to receive us, pull us close, and comfort us in our first disorienting experience in life. And most of us have had a parent or a caregiver that throughout our childhood, as we continue to experience different kinds of pain, has, that has tried to help us make sense of what we were experiencing. But the problem with parents is that they're human and they're not God. God is omnipresent. He's everywhere all at once, but our parents can't always be with us. God is omniscient, he's all-knowing, but our parents don't know everything, and so they didn't always know the best way to help us respond to the pain we were experiencing. So what that means is that at some point, we had to figure out what to do with the problem of pain on our own. When you were a little kid and you were running and you fell and you skinned your knee and there was no one around to notice, what did you tend to do? Were you one of those kids who would yell and scream as loud as they could, demanding that the world notice your pain? Or maybe had your context taught you that crying out in that way wouldn't necessarily get you the help you needed. Maybe in your context, crying that way might mean life would get even harder for you if the adults around you were frustrated by your crying. And so perhaps you learned that in your place, you needed to learn to turn that pain inside. However we learned to handle, handle pain as children tends to be the way we handle it as adults. Those patterns t tend to keep going. But the problem is that the, the habits of responding to pain that, that might have worked well for us in our childhood don't always transfer into adult life well. And so part of the task of adulthood is learning how to respond to our pain well and how to let go of the ways that, that of responding to pain that no longer work to us, for us. So there's good ways of responding to pain and there's bad ways of responding to pain. Good coping mechanisms include things like talking to our friends about what we're going through or being outdoors in nature or engaging in creative outlets like art or music or writing or going to therapy or support group. But for the bad coping mechanisms, there actually seems to be a lot more of those. I've kind of put them in three categories. The first category is pretty obvious to, to all of us that these behaviors don't really help us. They feel like they help us in the moment, but in the long run, they actually increase our pain and they hurt us and they hurt those around us. So behaviors in this category are things like lashing out at those around us in our frustration over our pain and suffering, or trying to numb our pain and suffering with drugs and alcohol. We'd all pretty much agree that these are bad coping mechanisms and they hurt us and those around us. But the second category is a little trickier. These behaviors might not be so bad if we just engaged in them once in a while. But the problem is that we get into habits of responding to pain that build over time and they start to take on a momentum of their own. 
So behaviors like overindulging in unhealthy food or overindulging in media or overspending, they don't start out as a problem, but they build into a problem over time. And so they also are bad coping mechanisms. The third category are behaviors that can actually look really good and seem to help us at first. So things in this category are things like overworking or overachieving or even overexercising. Again, these aren't bad on their own, but they tend to take, pick up speed as they go along and they start to overtake different parts of our lives and affect our health and affect our relationships. And so they also are bad coping mechanisms. I was uh, born with something called hip dysplasia, and if you've ever heard that term, it's probably in reference to a golden retriever or a Labrador retriever, because for some reason, dogs seem to have hip dysplasia a lot, but humans can have it too, and I'm one of those humans. And so about when I was 25, it started causing me constant pain. So I've tried a lot of both of these good coping mechanisms and a fair amount of these bad coping mechanisms. And I can testify that the bad coping mechanisms really do make your life harder, not easier. And so I try to stay away from them. But the truth is that most of us engage in a mixture of both good and bad coping mechanisms when it comes to dealing with pain. It turns out that it's a good thing that the bad coping mechanisms cause us more pain. This kind of pain isn't a punishment. This kind of pain acts as a protector. So I'll call it protective pain. This kind of pain can actually lead us towards healing. When you're cooking and you're chopping vegetables too quickly and you accidentally cut your finger, it hurts. So you stop what you're doing and you look at your finger, notice it's bleeding, and you go and wash your wound. You might put some ointment on it and a Band-Aid. Your pain actually pointed you towards healing. And your pain also protected you. The next time you're chopping vegetables, you will be sure to go a little slower and pay more attention, and you will probably be less likely to hurt yourself. This kind of protective pain doesn't really call into question the existence of God or his goodness. And that's because we have some degree of control over this kind of pain. If we want to hurt less, we can change our behavior and we will hurt less. But there's another kind of pain. I'll call this kind of pain powerless pain. And with powerless pain, we are powerless against it. It doesn't matter how good we get at our good coping mechanisms. Nothing we do really can stop these kinds of pain in the world. So this kind of pain includes things like the loss of a loved one or an illness that you can't prevent or cure or the loss of a job due to an economic downturn or systematic injustices or imbalances oppressive governments. It doesn't matter how good we get at managing ourselves. We can't really make a dent in these types of pain. And so this kind of pain does bring into question the existence of goodness of God. Since we feel powerless, we want the one with the power, which is God, with the control, to do something about it. Is he good or not? Why doesn't he stop it? Why does he allow it in the first place? These questions aren't new questions for humans. Humans have been wondering, is God really a good God for thousands and thousands of years? 
in, in Genesis, the first book of the Bible, in the very first conversation we see show up in the Bible, the two characters are um, talking about this problem and this question of God's character. God has just created the world and he's created the first two humans, Adam and Eve, and placed them in a lush garden filled with fruit trees. And he says to them, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. The reason God gives for this limitation is protection. But in the very next chapter, we see a new character enter the scene in the form of a serpent, and the serpent starts a conversation with Eve. He says, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The serpent is claiming that God put the limitation there to deprive Eve of something good. And so now Eve must decide what she thinks about the character of God. Is God good or not? Was he trying to protect her or is he trying to deprive her? Her conclusion is evidenced by her behavior. She eats from the tree of knowledge. When we're faced with realities about the world that we don't like, we must decide what we think about the character of the one who created it. Is God good? Can he be trusted? Is his plan a good one? Couldn't he have come up with a better one? Again, we see God's people wrestling with these questions in the book of Job. Job experiences catastrophic loss. And one day he loses all of his wealth and all of his children, and then he becomes severely ill. Job's first response to all of this loss is impressive. He says, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. But as time goes on, Job is worn down by his suffering. By chapter 27, he comes to the conclusion that God must not be just. When the bitter realities of long suffering set in, sometimes the only way it seems we can make sense of what's going on is to conclude that God is not just. This is similar to Eve's conclusion. Given her current circumstances, it looked like God was not good. I've wondered about God's goodness and justice in my own journey with chronic pain. I've had three reconstructive hip surgeries. These are much bigger than hip replacements. They've required me to be on crutches for two months after each one. After the first surgery, when it came time to finally put down my crutches, I went to take my first step and put my full weight on that leg and immediately my hip fractured. And so I had to go back on the crutches for two months. Now, these surgeries, they did help lessen the intensity of pain and they have given me good mobility that I can age well with, but they didn't take away all of the pain. 
And the problem is when your body is undergoing pain all of the time for decades, your nervous system gets overwhelmed. And so now, my, now I have systemic chronic pain from my nervous system just overreacting that will probably never go away for me. Now, I have a team of medical professionals who are helping me deal with it and manage it, but this pain started for me at 25, constantly. If I live to 75, that's 50 years of constant pain. Can my life really be good when I experience pain every moment of every day? If God loves me, why did he allow my life to be like this? He could have created my body differently. So why didn't he? God's answer to Job's accusation is challenging and comforting all at the same time. Have you ever had a really good coach or teacher, one that leans into your weak spots and presses into your pain points? The words that they speak are challenging and comforting all at the same time. They're comforting because if you're honest with yourself, you know that what they're saying about you is true and they are giving you a better path forward. This is what happens between God and Job. Listen to God's response to Job's accusation. Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge, dressed for action like a man? I will question you and you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? God goes on and on like this for four chapters. When you get home, I encourage you to go read it. It's a literary tour of the wonders of God's creation. His words are both challenging and comforting and calming all at the same time. It's like when a very young child is reminded that they are fact, in fact, not the one in charge. That correction allows them to return to the comfort and care of their parent. They can't provide for themselves. They can't provide their own food and shelter and clothing and medical care. That job is way too big for them. Listen to Job's response to God. You asked, who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. You said, here and I will speak. I will question you and you make it known to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. I love this passage because Job's questioning of God's character actually led to greater intimacy with God. He said, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Job had to grapple with these questions about God's character with God. He had to 
confront God with what he really thought about the situation in order to really see God. Job's words aren't him just assenting to some religious theory. His words are the words of a response from a faith lived out in the trenches of real life. In the middle of life's messiest, most painful season, Job came face to face with these questions and he came face to face with his creator. We all hit seasons in life where we come face to face with these questions and with our creator. It's inescapable. Even Jesus himself did not escape this question. In the middle of his most painful moment, as he hung dying on the cross, we hear him cry out with the words of Psalm 22. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Psalm 22 goes on to say, why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. The Psalms are full of God's people lamenting over the pain they experience in the world. The Psalms give us permission and space to grapple with these questions with God. God's not afraid of those questions. He's not afraid of your anger, your confusion, your despair. He can handle it. To be human is to at times feel like God has forsaken you. So how does God respond when we come to him with this kind of pain? When I ask myself this question, the first story that pops into my head is the story of Lazarus. Lazarus and Jesus are really good friends, but one day Jesus is away on a trip when Lazarus falls deathly ill. Now, Lazarus has a sister named Mary, and Mary and Jesus are also very good friends. And Jesus has been going around healing people, and so Mary sends word to Jesus that Lazarus is deathly ill, hoping that he will return and heal her brother. But instead, Jesus does something curious. He remains where he is for several more days. By the time he finally returns, Lazarus is already dead and buried. Mary actually comes out to him before Jesus even gets all the way back and basically accuses him of allowing her brother to die. At this, Jesus himself starts to weep. This is God's response to our pain. It's to grieve with us. He grieves with us. In the first book of the New Testament, Matthew, in chapter one, it says that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecy for a savior. And it says that we will call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. This is God's response to human suffering. It's to be with us in it. He grieves with us. We may feel alone. We may feel like he's forsaken us, but we're not alone and he hasn't forsaken us. The interesting thing about the story of Lazarus is that the text indicates that it was Jesus' plan all along to allow Lazarus to die and then raise him from the dead. But when Mary comes out weeping, Jesus still grieves with her. He knows how the story ends, but 
Apparently, that moment of grief mattered to him. He grieves with Mary. That moment, that time, that space mattered. Your pain, your suffering matters. In Revelation 21, it says that our story ends in this way. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Even though God is at work restoring his creation, the pain we experience now matters. You know what Jesus didn't do when Mary came out to him weeping for the loss of her brother? He didn't tell her that there was no reason for her to cry. Instead, he stops and he doesn't rush to fix it either. He doesn't decide to go raise Lazarus at that moment. Instead, he weeps with Mary and he's not just grieving her loss, he's grieving his loss. His good friend Mary misunderstood him and thought that he didn't care about her or her brother. But that wasn't true. Emmanuel's response to pain should be our response to pain. We should grieve our losses and we should grieve the losses of those around us. It's like when a child gets stung by a bee. As adults, we know that in a couple hours, it won't hurt anymore. But we would never correct that child for crying at that moment. Instead, we pull them into our lap. We sit with them in their pain. Their pain right then matters, even though it's gonna go away in a couple of hours. I've learned this with my own journey with chronic pain. When I was a kid, I was a total tomboy. I loved being outside all the time. I loved playing sports in the neighborhood. I loved beating all of the boys in basketball until I got to fifth grade and they kept growing and I did not. But it was fun while it lasted. Uh, playing sports is one of the greatest joys of my life, but now with my hips the way they are, I'm no longer supposed to run and so I can't play sports. Why would God create me to enjoy sports so much and then take it away from me? It doesn't matter how good I get at my good coping mechanisms. Sometimes that's not enough. I need something more. My husband and his friends are marathon runners and I have to sit on the sidelines and just watch. Now, this loss isn't as bad of a loss as the losses I know that some of you are facing right now, but it's a loss nonetheless, and it's my loss. And like I said, the good coping mechanisms aren't good enough sometimes. I need something more. I need to grieve my pain, and I need to get it out. I need someone powerful to see it and notice it. Otherwise, I get stuck, and I can't move forward. The Psalms have taught me how to take my laments directly to God. Lament is actually an act of worship because in the middle of our pain, we choose to turn towards God instead of away from him. Lament is the place where we meet God 
in the middle of our pain and suffering. This is what you needed when you were a little kid and fell and scraped your knee and there was no one around to see. You needed someone who was ever present and all powerful and all knowing to see your pain. If we skip the step of bringing our deep grief to God, our faith becomes weak and shallow. We can't have a real relationship with someone if we don't bring them all of us. Think of the person that you are closest to. Maybe it's a best friend or your spouse or a child. If they didn't bring you all their experiences, if they didn't tell you when they were having a hard time, it wouldn't feel like you had a real relationship with them. You want to know when they're struggling. You want to know when they're experiencing despair confusion, anger. You want to know when they're mad, even when you're the one that they're mad at. You want to know because you want a real relationship with them. We were created for this kind of deep, real relationship with our creator, where we can say what we really think to God. What's your belief about how you think God expects you to deal with the pain in your life? Do you think He expects you to just get really good at your good coping mechanisms and deal with it on your own. Think about the stories of Jesus and Job and Mary. They all believe that there is enough space in their relationship with God to bring him their raw, unfiltered responses to the pain they were experiencing. And God met them in those moments. He sat with them. He grieved with them. He processed it with them. And then they were able to move forward. The story continued. There are only two ways to relate to God in the midst of pain. We can either turn towards him or we can turn away from him. If you don't believe in the existence of God, my question for you is, in the middle of life's most painful moments, most confusing moments, don't you long for someone to be mad at? For someone to take your questions and your anger to? This is the kind of relationship the God, the God of the Bible invites you into. The Bible doesn't paint a picture of God that looks something like high church where the only version of you that's welcome is one that's well-dressed and in control of their emotions at all times. The Bible is full of messy stories with messy people and a good God who can handle it. You don't have to suffer alone. Bring God your real thoughts and emotions about what's happening in your life, about what's happening around the world, and ask him to help you understand both him and this world that he created. He will respond to you. It might look differently than you anticipated. He has a habit of responding in creative ways, but he will respond and you'll get to know him better. We were created to get to know him better over time. As the years go by, as the seasons go by, as we hit hard thing after hard thing and we bring them to him and we sit with him in it, we get to know his character. Our questions about his character get addressed when we come to him with our pain. The good thing is that we have a community here that's on this same journey. We're all getting to know God and his character better over time. None of us have it all the way figured out, 
but we do know that it's better to not suffer alone. If turning towards God in the middle of pain is new to you, let someone here at the church know we'd love to support you in any way that we can. I didn't wanna preach the sermon because I have all of the answers to pain and suffering, but I did wanna preach the sermon because I've learned how to find intimacy with God in the midst of pain. And I've actually found it to be a doorway to the full life that I've been looking for. I don't find this full life when my life looks perfect or in the absence of hard things. I actually find this full life in the middle of life's most painful moments. Like Job, I tend to come out of these moments and seasons saying, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now I see you. Now I know you. And this is exactly what I've been looking for all along. Pray with me. God, help us to know how to respond to the pain we experience and the pain we see in the world. Like Jesus in the middle of it, we, we wonder if you've forsaken us. But like Jesus, help us to bring those questions directly to you. Enable us to be honest and direct with you. Protect us from the lies of the enemy that question your character. And in our pain, help us to sense your presence, to notice your tears, to notice you grieving with us. Help us to know and understand you better as all the years and seasons of our life go by. Thank you for this community that we can work this out with and help us to grow closer to you and closer to one another as we're journeying together toward your restored creation. In your name, amen. There, thank you. There will be a lunch right after this service where we will continue to talk about these questions about pain and suffering together. So we invite you to join us. It's, it'll be upstairs right outside the front doors and I'll be there along with some other staff and volunteers. And we would love to have you join us for that. Right now we're gonna go into a time of reflection. The worship team is going to sing a song over you so you can stay seated and just listen. And as you're doing that, I invite you to bring God whatever questions or thoughts or feelings you have about the pain in your life or in the world right now and ask him to meet you there and ask him to help you understand him better and this world better.